How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. It's been 20 years, 20 years later, and today we're here to discuss 9-11's impact on EMS operations and the key takeaways in practice today from that time. This special edition podcast is brought to you by Vector Solutions. With Vector Solutions, emergency response agencies are able to manage operational readiness with innovative applications for EMS continuing education, asset management, controlled substance tracking, and employee scheduling. If you have any questions, please contact them today at 1-800-840-8046 or visit them online at www.vectorsolutions.com. With me today is somebody that's been with me in the past. Josh Hartman is the Senior Vice President of EMS World, but he's also a New York City paramedic, and he also played an integral role on the day of 9-11. Today's podcast is a, a little bit different than normal. It's going to be uh, extremely stripped down. I told Josh that I had no questions in front of me. There's no notes. It's more of a back-and-forth conversation on how we've gotten to 20 years and where we've come in that 20 years and the challenges that we still face and what we need to do. Josh, welcome back. Thanks, Mike. Uh, it is always good to be in your company. And I think you stated it exactly right. This is a uh, this is an opportunity for uh, probably some further cathartic uh, messaging uh, for the two of us, probably, and certainly uh, an educational opportunity for everyone else. And as always, um, I appreciate the opportunity both to share the time with you and uh, and our EMS World colleagues. So, Josh, uh, how have we gotten to 20 years? I mean, I, I know personally, I remember every single detail of that day. Um, you know, it, it seems like it was it, it was a year ago, um, and it never ever seems to dull, uh, and it never seems to get blunted in memory. I'm curious as to, you know, your feelings on 20 years and and how you view that now. So I I agree with you and disagree with you. So I agree with you that it never dulls. And they say that time heals all wounds. And this one, I think, is just different. Um, I I don't think it has dulled at all over 20 years. Um, At the same time, I can't believe it's 20 years. I think about um, when I did finally get home um, after... uh, being down there at the World Trade Center, and I came home to two uh, infant twins who were at the time eight months old, uh, and now they're in college. So uh, I think about that and and how long it really has been. But as soon as I think about that, um, I just can't believe it's been twenty years because I I do still have that really raw emotion to anybody or any time I hear the term 9-11, and they could be talking about someone who dialed 9-11. I know we usually say we dialed 911, but but if someone even says that they dialed 9-11 or they refer to something about 9-11, it, it, it has this, you know, this real raw emotion I still have today um, about that about that day. 
it's there's no question that it changed everything. That day changed everything for this country. You know, I, I look at it and, and I say, you know, and, and and respectfully, I say, are we jaded more here in the Northeast because we dealt with this directly, um, you know, as responders? Is this something that, you know, has stuck with us in a way that's helped us build, you know, as we move forward in, in preparedness and, and just in our everyday function? You know, what what are your thoughts on... I, I don't I don't really know exactly how to explain it, but what are your thoughts on us just being directly involved with that over this many years and what it's done? I, I think there is a a difference, um, not better or worse. It's not a judgment. It's just a difference for someone who experiences it either directly or and that, you know, directly in this case I mean by being engaged in that theater, right? In that environment, or as part of an agency that was involved. So even, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I was particularly involved, but there were other parts, other, you know, members of my agency that weren't on duty that day or didn't make it down to that day. And I think they're, they're pretty impacted as well. Um, I think that it has absolutely changed the way that we operate. It has absolutely had an impact on what we think the capabilities are of our adversaries. Um, But to your point, I do think that there is uh, a further sensitivity maybe, or it's a further um, kind of maybe even looking over your shoulder for those of us who were directly engaged um, compared to those who weren't. But I, I don't want to minimize the impact it's had on, um, you know, our colleagues who were, you know, in California watching the how horrible it was on TV. And, and th- there's a significant impact that it's had at that time on them. And, um, you know, their future operations as well. But I do agree that that being there um, and being directly engaged in that activity um, makes us hypersensitive, hypervigilant around the, um, the, you know, the concept of, of what we experience there. Josh, what, you know, we look at we look at tomorrow and um, so many were lost. And I think it's important for the listeners to understand from from the background perspective what it is, um, you know, we did specifically on that day uh, and what role we played. So, you know, obviously, uh, present day, senior vice president, EMS world, and, and you like basically everybody in EMS holds 16 different positions, but New York City paramedics. So on that day, take us back to what what it was you were doing and what role you were playing? Sure. So, so at, at the time I was a paramedic, uh, New York city paramedic for just over three years. And I was, it was early in the morning as everybody knows, I was uh, going to my full-time job, which was in non EMS related in Midtown, uh, Manhattan. And, uh, my role was that I was uh, dispatched through the um, mutual aid system in New York City, and I made it down to the World Trade Center after the second plane hit the building. So I got picked up after the first plane hit the building, and I arrived after the second plane hit the building. So I never actually saw the planes hit the building uh, in person at all, and didn't see it even on TV until days later. Um, but when I arrived, uh, as a typical good new paramedic, I found the guy with the white helmet 
and I asked the ICS, um, you know, went through the ICS structure, and I asked the incident commander what 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 I should do. Where do, where does he need help? So he assigned me to what the fire department in New York refers to as a MERV, basically a big old school bus that has stretchers instead of student seats. Um, and a Fidney paramedic and I were um, assigned to that uh, vehicle to take in um, patients as they were leaving the World Trade Center structure. And um, the, the the vehicle, for those of people who want to Google or, or kind of find out where it was, the vehicle was sitting at Vesey and West Street, which is the uh, the the uh, northeast corner of the World Trade Center complex, basically just across the street from uh, two World Trade Center and uh, seven World Trade Center. So that was my assignment, and um, I got there, and uh, both buildings were still standing. Um, I think the thing I most vividly remember, the most horrible thing I I vividly remember, is watching the people struggle above the fire. Uh, and make the unconscionable decision to 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 jump versus uh, burn. That that is something that will be ingrained in me forever. Um, it's been well documented, as everyone knows. But um, to me, that was probably the most. Um, I don't want to use use the word impressive, but it it was truly uh, an impression made upon me for the rest of my life. Um, but we were there to treat patients coming out of the, the World Trade Center. And it wasn't but a few minutes after I had set up shop with my partner who I had never met before. The Fire Department of New York has a very large EMS infrastructure, and I never met this par- other paramedic before. But within a few minutes, um, the first of the two towers uh, collapsed, and uh, everyone just started running. Uh, I'm sure people have seen on TV the building did not topple over. It did not, you know, it's a very large 114, 110-story building. It did not fall over. It imploded. It fell downwards and outwards like an inverse mushroom cloud. And um, the the school bus, MERV, had two uh, entrances and egresses, uh, one out the back, which is uh, like an emergency exit of a school bus, and that's where the ramp was that the stretchers would be brought in. And the other, imagine where the school bus door would normally be that students would come in. Um, and as the buildings collapsed, we had only seen a few patients, mainly on uh, on uh, slinging and swathing and uh, eye irrigation. We hadn't really seen any significant patients, um, just were kind of waiting there. And I was able to get out of the MERV through the door, the side door that normally students would kind of walk into. Uh, and I just ran uh, towards the Hudson River and uh, found a, uh, a delivery vehicle that was sitting there and hid underneath the delivery vehicle until um, the air never really cleared, but at least the the kind of downflow of debris um, stopped. And I, I recall people running past me and jumping into the river. I remember people running in all sorts of different directions. Um, but it was a it was a crazy time, and I think that you know the perspective I have of being there is someone who did not see the actual incident happen. We were prepared to treat um, patients as they exited the building. I never went into the building, um, and um, was there and uh, engaged in the treatment post building collapses. 
Yeah. And I think that might've been one of the hardest things to deal with as a responder, given the fact that that that's how we're built, right? We, we expect to help people. We expect to work and we want to make a difference. And I think that that probably was the biggest issue um, with that. Now, you know, from my perspective, I, I was on the other side of the river um, in Hudson County, which is five minutes from Manhattan. Um, and we were dispatched as first due mutual aid uh, to the, the ground zero site. And, um, you know, I, w- I did actually see the second plane uh, hit the towers. And I think at that point, as we were m- mobilizing, we noticed that we, we saw it. And that's when things got real. You know, initially, I think that you, you kind of go into a um, th- this pocket of, well, this is an accident or something happened. This is a malfunction. The plane, it, you know, something happened. And then when you saw a second plane do it, that's when immediately you said, OK, this isn't right. Um, and I think that that's when kind of panic set in. And, and at that point, we were we were already mobilizing towards uh, towards Manhattan, towards the Holland Tunnel from Bayonne. And uh, once we got to the mouth of the tunnel, um, we actually were rerouted to establish a treatment area at Ellis Island, uh, directly across in Jersey City. And, um, you know, at that point, I remember, you know, my father uh, had his command vehicle and he was going to uh, he was going to go over uh, to meet up with the command on, on the NYC side. And, you know, he had said, you know, you go over and establish a treatment area. At that point, we had ta- we had broken off, and I took um, about eight BLS units through Jersey City. And, and the one thing I, I think that I recall most was watching the the initial tower fall, because um, it was at that moment that we were at Exchange Place in Jersey City, which literally anybody that knows Jersey City in New Jersey, it is directly across. And to watch that uh, fall. The exact way that you stated, Josh, was probably the most surreal moment I've ever had in my life. It was like everything slowed down. It's like the movie when you're watching when somebody speaks to you in slow motion. Everything just kind of stopped. Um, and at that point, we had to continue to push forward to get to Ellis Island. And there was a lot of fear about crossing the bridge onto Ellis Island because we didn't know if another plane was going to hit. And I think at that point, you know, we, we started to break down our units. Uh, to establish some sort of ad hoc treatment area. And, um, you know, we would get maybe a handful of patients over on ferries that came and they were uh, police and fire mostly um, that were covered in uh, debris and they would just consistently say they're all gone. They're all gone. And at that point, it, it started to register, um, you know, the, the emotions, the fear. Uh, we had no idea what was going on and, and we were just so isolated to that island looking across and, um, you know, I think it brought up so many different, uh, emotions. I remember, I, I think I was a, at that point, uh, a three, four year EMT saying to myself, I don't even want to do this anymore. Uh, you know what I mean? I, that's what I had set out for. And, and, you know, as a new EMT, a new medic, you're always looking for big jobs and things like that. And that just hit so hard that it made you think, you know, th- this, this is almost too much. Um, but you knew you had a job to do. And, um, and, and we did. And unfortunately, like I said, when I led with this is that th- there wasn't much we had to do. The, and that was the hardest part because there wasn't much coming across. And at that point, we realized the significance, you know, of this type of attack. Yeah, I think it's an it's an interesting perspective that was on both sides of the river about 
mobilization. So I'll I'll flip the question here, and I'll I'll, I'll ask you the question, and then I, I can answer on my side too. But you know, I didn't have the 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 large scope role like you did, right? You 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 had the the objective of setting up a command essentially where where you could treat triage transport. You know, when you saw the buildings collapse, and like you said, for people who know Exchange Place, we don't need to tell you, but if you don't know Exchange Place, you're essentially looking at a postcard of Southern Manhattan where those two towers were right in front of your face. It, there was there's, there's one set of buildings, the World Financial Center, which are maybe 36 to 40 floors, and right behind them are these massive towers of 110, 115 floors. So you had a front row seat to horror, right? I mean, so... So as you watched that collapse, you knew you had the job to do, but but what? how did you prepare and what was it that you were going to do where you ultimately realized that, you know, you weren't getting the droves, unfortunately, you weren't getting the droves of patients, but, but what were you, like, what was the plan? <laughs> and I think that that's a, a great question. And, and truth be told, I don't know that there was a plan. I, you know, I think that at that point, we were acting on adrenaline alone to, you know, adapt and overcome to, to the, the gravity and, and the magnitude of what was happening. You know, you look at that, you know, if you step back from that type of incident and you look at it, you say, this is a, this is a monumental task, but when you're put in front of it and you have to do something, you, you know, as with anything in life, you just go at it. Right. And so I don't think that there was any specific task. I think, you know, I knew that we were over our heads. Um, but you know, certainly you couldn't show that. And certainly you, you had to do what you had to do to, you know, finish out the operation and, and to see it through. But I could tell you that, you know, those that were, you know, behind me were scared just as I was. I mean, you tried not to show your fear, but there were people there saying, don't go over that bridge, you know, don't go over that bridge because, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, I remember everyone saying we have to go, you know, we, we have to get over there. So, uh, you know, as far as a plan is concerned, as, as far as mobilization is concerned, you know, and I think that we're going to touch upon that, you know, as we move here. But that was something that was lacking quite a bit, you know, especially from the perspective on the Jersey side, those type of mobilization plans, sure, they existed, but we operated in such silos that it was very difficult to have a coordinated type response. Yeah, I, I don't think in my entire life I've ever felt this emotion of both being overwhelmed and underwhelmed at the exact same time. Yep. Right? You're you're overwhelmed because it is literally unfathomable of what you just experienced with your own eyes and ears, right? It's totally overwhelming. But then it's totally underwhelming because your expectation is now that I went through all this training, I, I just survived this. Now I'm going to go help people, but there's really nobody to help. There's nobody to help, and I, and I'll be honest with you. You know, you look at obviously we're, we're not in um, a situation. Uh, we weren't in a situation then that we are now with social media and everything else. But remember that the, the world was watching, right? They were watching in live time, in, in in real time. We weren't. 
<laughs> we were on an island watching across. So we were getting no intel. And I recall being scared to death that another commercial airliner was going to either target the Statue of Liberty or, or somewhere else. And we, you know, I remember constantly looking up and looking up. And then, and, and then at one point, I remember when we had our treatment area established on Ellis Island, you know, we had, um, we had FBI come in and they went right to the rooftop of the building there on Ellis Island because, again, they were holding security because nobody knew. And we had no idea. You know, we were just figuring this out as we went. And, you know, I think that not having that type of intel coming in was also very unnerving. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I think that, and this, this touches on one of the topics I think we need to hit on, and that is interagency communication. Um, but before I get to that, I, 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 you just triggered a, a comment, a thought that I had, and that is that as we were down there, as both buildings had already collapsed, you know, it's eerily quiet except for those pat tags going off from the fire department. Every one of the, every one of those tags that unfortunately you hear when the, per, when the firefighter stops moving this, that that's the noise. That's really the only noise you heard. And then at one point, probably 30 minutes, although I have really no sense of time at that point, you heard several fighter jets go overhead. And that was the scariest sound in the world because what just happened is two planes just struck this building. And now you hear, of course, thank God they were, you know, United States Air Force or military going over our heads. But all of a sudden you hear these fighter jets going over our heads. Um, so anyway, so I paused because that was another huge impact in my, in my mind um, just being there at, at the moment. But, but going back to interagency communications. So I think we've come some way, I'd say, in interagency communications, because that day there were very little to no interagency communications. And that's even within the New York City infrastructure, much less reaching out to you, as you described it, both actually, and so literally and metaphorically, you were on an island, right? Exactly. So, so we had very little communications down you know, on the pile at ground zero, the police weren't able to speak well to the, to the uh, fire department, EMS. You had the port authority who was in the building, not speaking directly as very well with, with New York city police department. So that's just where we were. I can't even imagine where you were, where you weren't geographically attached and this Island that you're on. So, so I, I, I consistently think about how we have done some improvement um, in interagency communications on incidents that do still, you know, traverse the two states, but but that was a real big challenge that day. Oh, it was it was monumental. And and to be quite honest with you, I'll give you a perfect example. You know, we were at the south end uh, of the island um, of Liberty State Park, and you know there was another operation on the, from the Jersey side operating in the north end. And, you know, when we went on to Ellis Island, we had about eight units with us that established this, you know, ad hoc treatment area. And, and we were out there, no sense of time. Like you said, it was, you, you were just going, going, going. And then I recall at one point going out back over the bridge onto, um, you know, the, the large grass area that was out there. And there was 150 ambulances from throughout New Jersey there. Now, we didn't call for them. <laughs> we didn't ask for it. Right. And that in itself, if, if you remember back then, the big buzzword was self-deployment. Yeah. And that is exactly what happened. There was self-deployment. You went out there. There were agencies from all over 
New Jersey, and I mean all over New Jersey. I, I'm talking all the way down south. People with vests. Incident. There were probably about 300 incident commanders out there on that lawn that day yeah. with clipboards and everything else. And 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 that there was probably the jumping off point to saying, "Oh my God, we we need NIMS, right? We need this framework to respond to these types of incidents." Yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. I think that the we as as EMTs, paramedics, first responders of any stripe or color um, have a high tempo. We need to make an impact and um, you know get down and dirty and, and in there. And I'm not sure that other than you know maybe an ICS class class here or there that the term staging really meant anything to anybody prior to 9/11. I mean maybe in you know, I, I think that was a huge turning point in establishing legitimate staging points for units. Um, I still think that if, God forbid, there were a, a massive tragedy again, you would still get an influx of uninvited uh, people who, who all mean well, right? Let's be clear. They all mean well. But I, I think with, with NIMS and, and with some of the infrastructure that we've built, um, whether in New Jersey, it's at the county level um, or in New York, it's at the agency level that there would be a little bit less of everybody showing up to the scene and a little more organization around uh, multiple staging points. Um, I'd like to believe that. Uh, but I but I think that was a big lesson learned is that you, you put everybody there uh, and um, you're really putting everybody in jeopardy for, um, you know, the purposes of unknown. Um, so I, I think that's definitely definitely a, a learning point and and one that kind of leads to another comment that I have around underestimating uh, capabilities of our adversaries. You know, I, I, I can certainly speak for myself that when I got down to the World Trade Center area and I went into this MERV that existed across the street of about what was probably, I think it was probably three and three or two and two lanes. Uh, north-south corridor of the West Side Highway, I felt pretty comfortable. I felt like the buildings were on the other side of the street. I mean, these are huge structures. Like, there's no way this thing is coming down. No one even thought of it as a possibility. And we were setting up a triage area essentially across the street. And, you know, today, no one would ever do that. Like, no one would ever underestimate. So I think that's another lesson that we've learned is to never underestimate what the potential for disaster can be. So now we kind of have all in our minds like, yeah, it's a really big building. Yeah, it, it it's never fallen before. But we think 20 years ago, back to 9-11, a building of that magnitude, of that infrastructure, it fell. Well, we're going to set up a little bit further away. We're going to, you know, I mean, I think that's a that's a definite lesson learned about not underestimating what the potential of danger can be. Without question. And I think that it goes to, it lends itself to the meaning of not just heroes because they went in there to try to save, you know, human life, not because they died doing that, because they died and brought about significant changes for the rest of us. You know, that, that, that can never be lost. You know, them, them standing at the bottom, right. And setting up a command post or a triage uh, group or a treatment group, you know, they died and, and they, they, they did that, you know, with nothing more than the utmost bravery, but they did it and it changed the way that we do things now, all of these years later, 
Um, and, and that should never, ever be lost, you know, because we tend to forget some of those small things. And, and we forget that we're learning every single day. You know, I mean, it, just because you're a 20-year veteran, a 22-year veteran, a 25-year veteran, you're still learning, right? You know, you're never going to be 100% ready for everything that's thrown at you, but you utilize what you have experienced in the past and your basic knowledge to get you through it the safest way possible. And, you know, I think that that is something that's so important to this as we look 20 years later, retrospectively, as to how we have gotten better. And I, and I, and, you know, we've hit on so many of the points, but, you know, as far as coordinating our response plans as far you know, I'll be honest with you, Josh, I, I said that when we started doing NIMS and NIMS was an executive order by the president and everybody had, every responder had to take it. Well, that's great. You know, we know how that went, uh, you know, yeah, there was an answer sheet left out and everybody did it. But remember, if you looked at it initially, it was still the respective disciplines that were operating within their own response plan, right? And that to me has been one of the biggest sticking points and something that we can continue to struggle with as far as integrating our response plans with all disciplines, because these major incidents aren't just EMS, police, or fire specific. You know, it takes everybody working together in a coordinated platform to get the best result. Oh, 100%. I mean, just think about it. When was the last MCI that any of us responded to that had only one agency there? Correct. It's, it's impossible. I don't think it's ever happened. So yeah, your, your point is a good one. And I, I would just expand upon it that it is our responsibility, right? It is the, it is the legacy of the people who died on 9-11 is what we have been taught from them. And it is therefore incumbent upon us. It is our responsibility for, for those of us who are still both treating patients and in management responsibility roles to take the lessons that were learned and to create a better, a more sophisticated, more comprehensive response environment for the safety of our crews, for the safety of our colleagues, and for the legacy of those people that we learned from. That is our, that's our responsibility. It, it is completely. And, and I, I usually take the anniversary um, and, and I utilize it to, to obviously, you know, find a place of gratitude, but also, remember what it is we still need to work on in honor of those that went before us. And we have work to do. Um, you know, I, I was just on a call yesterday um, with the UASI EMS subcommittee, and we're doing another drill where a hospital explosion with evacuation and everything else. And, you know, we got down into the weeds on the planning part of it. And we said, you know, I got to be honest with you. There's still not a great interaction between the field crews and the hospital crews as it result as it relates to triage tags. You know, it, it, we're this far past 9/11, and mass cas MCI tags are still not really well utilized. So you know, it's those types of little things that we we're jaded, man. You know, you know, we are, we're just in an industry that we're jaded and it's very easy to become complacent and say, we'll deal with it when it comes. But it, it takes a much stronger, greater person, you know, to look at your shortcomings and say, we have to fix this. You, we have to fix this and you have to do it because those 
that went before you made a great sacrifice, and that should always be the reminder. Totally agree. And and you know the triage tag is is just one example of many that we can identify in which ways that we can better collaborate. Um, you know, I, I I think I think back to not just not just nine eleven, but but any sort of interagency operation, and I think that where we need to go is back to the basics. It's it's keep it as simple as humanly possible because in crisis mode there is no time to be intricate. You know, I think back about early in my career where nobody would answer you on the radio if you didn't use the right 10 code, right? Yeah. That's just ridiculous. Yep. Nobody's playing with 10 codes when people are in dire circumstances. And I think we've come away there, right? We, people have, have recognized that that we need to communicate in a language that is understandable to everybody because what what McCabe may call 10 two, 10, three, whatever, New York City could call it com- something completely different. And you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble if you respond to one when it's the other. So so I, it's just a very basic example. You say triage tags, I say the 10 codes, but, but, but we still have a long way to go. And it remains our responsibility to address these types of issues and to, and to try and mitigate any, any sort of territorial boundaries, any sort of obstruction to ways that we can collaborate, whether it's across a state line, across an agency line, because I guarantee you that our adversaries do not care about what county you're in, what state you're in, or who you work for. There is zero doubt about that. You know, there has to be uh, that adaptation where we're keeping it simple so that we all understand. And, you know, there are so many different operational things that we speak of, but you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say as we wind down on this special edition, are we taking care of ourselves the right way? Um, we lost another paramedic here in New Jersey yesterday or, or two days ago um, to suicide. And it's now just become something that is almost, um, I don't, I don't want to say accepted, but it just becomes common nature. And that can't be. Um, you know, the mental wellness of the responder community, we need to do a better job. So, you know, we can talk about coordination and, and radio comms and all of those things. But until we start talking about and getting more serious about taking care of ourselves, none of that's going to matter. You're 100% right. And and if I have to see another Facebook post, and, and I, I, I don't know, I did not know um, the first responder that you that you mentioned, but if I have to see another Facebook post of, of that that essentially alludes to, as you said, someone taking uh, their own life, um, it is heartbreaking. And you know, it, it's not obviously all nine eleven related, but we know we know the emotional toll that um, the psychological toll that nine eleven took on both the responders who were there. And the responders who were not there—I mean, the survivors' guilt that that occurs amongst our colleagues, the um, the PTSD that has occurred amongst our colleagues. So, I, 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 you're always right on the money, and here you're uh, once again right on the money. We we have to find ways to help ourselves and to help each other. And uh, I, I honestly believe that there is. Uh, uh, thankfully, some sort of crack in that armor where people are starting to 
begin to not fear having these discussions, we have a long way to go though, obviously, unfortunately. Yeah, we really do. And and I think that more and more people are starting to say it's okay to not be okay. And and that is true. And and you need to be an open ear for those colleagues just as much as they need to be an open ear for you. And and don't don't be ashamed and don't be scared and don't feel a certain way because you're vulnerable. That needs to be you need to have an outlet because taking one's own life uh it, it's 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 just so it's it's terrible. And like, you know, I, I don't really know what else to say on it other than we need to do a better job. And uh, I, I hate to I hate to sum up on that, but it's just something that's really important. It's stuck with me. And, you know, we have a day tomorrow where we celebrate uh, so many incredible individuals, you know, that paid the ultimate sacrifice. We don't need any more to to go uh, before us. So be there for your fellow responders. Um, Josh, this to me, I, I, you know, again, I, I find it to be very therapeutic. Um, you know, this is always a really, really rough time and, uh, to be able to discuss it, uh, in an open forum and, and very candidly is, uh, is therapeutic for me. So I hope it was for you. Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's not a topic that comes up very often. Um, you know, again, just probably a, a self-preservation, um, concept for me, but I think it, it is important to have these discussions. It is important to recognize them. It is important to recognize the challenges ahead and identify mechanisms by which we can address these challenges. And as you said before, you know, this, this podcast, and, and we do appreciate Vector Solutions for their support of it, this podcast is dedicated to those people and their families who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our industry for those who came after them and for the lessons that they taught us and how we can better treat our patients in the future based on their sacrifice. Without question. Well said, Josh. And tomorrow is 20 years. So I implore everyone to find a place of gratitude and to reflect on all of the great things that they have in their life and also make sure that we pay tribute to those that went before us. Again, Josh, I want to thank you for coming on. I also want to thank Vector Solutions. Vector Solutions considers it a privilege to serve this industry. That's why they work hard every day to create software solutions that keep first responders safe, compliant, and operationally effective. Remember, call Vector Solutions at 1-800-840-8046 or visit them at www.vectorsolutions.com. Josh, thanks for coming on. Always. Be safe, brother. You too, my man. This has been a special edition of EMS World Podcasts. Never forget. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 